So today I would like to explore with you all and the basic exploration is what I am ex like calling homemaking dharma. And really it's, it's an intention to unpack this. You may have heard Thich Nhat Hanh say, you have arrived, you are home. You have arrived, you are home. Well, okay. So in a sense, we are all making a home for ourselves, all right? And I want to propose to you that the spiritual, your spiritual path, our spiritual journey is in a sense, a process of creating and making a home, all right? And what do we really want our home to be like, okay? So when I heard this phrase, and I was actually in, the first time I saw it, I was going to psychotherapy and my psychotherapist had it on the wall and it was framed. It was like, you are arrived, you are home. And I'm like, I don't feel like that at all. <laughs> I'm in psychotherapy right now. Nice reminder, but... So that kind of stirred my questioning. Okay, so what is this? And I wanted to share a little bit about my own personal path and spiritual journey just as a way to relate to you and, um, and give you just a little bit more insight, those of you that don't know much about me and like, what, what who is this person? So. I really grew up, I'm living in Swannanoa, North Carolina, which is unceded charity territory. And I grew up in Wilkesboro, which is a couple hours away from here in North Carolina. And it's a very conservative, small town. And if you live in the United States, there have been some documentaries on the public PBS about Wilkesboro and it being one of the um, most impoverished and poor towns in the United States. <laughs> I grew up across the street basically from a chicken factory and would drive to school and wonder what in the world is happening. This is, does not feel like home. I had this very tender sense from a very young age that this I was not getting the mirroring. Like I, I felt more connected to life itself than I was given that message. All right. I went to a Baptist church. My grandparents drugged me. Actually, they didn't drag me. My parents thought they were dragging me to a Baptist church. And yeah, all I remember is being taught that I was deeply unworthy and that embodiment was definitely a sin. And I had to do a lot of work this lifetime to arrive at anywhere close to what they were saying was heaven. All right. So at a very young age, I would just eat the peppermints that my grandfather gave me and just be like, I just don't understand this. This doesn't make any sense. This isn't what? So then, of course, my parents were like, this happened for a few Sundays and they were like, uh-uh, this is going to take me back to church. Just this is going to get me to take this girl somewhere else. So I started going to the Episcopal church. All right. I grew up in a, it's a, the cultural religious is a dominant Christian culture. So I grew up within that. 
And within the Episcopal Church, I really fell in love with the rituals of it. I was one of those people that carried the cross in and lit the candles and sung in the choir. And for me, the rituals and some of the messaging really in that environment, it wasn't so heavily sin-based. And so I was able to open a little bit. All right. I was able to open a little bit. I was able to taste that, okay, yeah, there is such a thing as love and there is such a thing as being kind to each other and that makes a difference. And taking lunch to people that are sick, that's a nice thing to do. It makes me feel good. And so the community aspect was really a part of what I really enjoyed. Meanwhile, I was getting the message, love your neighbor as yourself, and then looking around at a very small conservative southern town, very racist, and saying, wait a second, love that neighbor, but not that neighbor? That doesn't make sense. And then I just felt myself, I was so angry by the time that I was a teenager. I was skipping school, driving to Raleigh, which is the big city, spending the day in Raleigh and driving back. And my, and my parents didn't even know. So I was like doing anything that I could to get out of there because this, it, the mirroring, I didn't feel like I belonged at all. All right. So you all can just sense into your own body, mind, heart. What is this bringing up in you? I'm sure that this is bringing up different kinds of reactions and responses to what I'm sharing. And this is part of what we go through when we start to sense into like, well, where do I feel at home, all right? Like, where is my spiritual home? And I'm going to bring it into spiritual home because you can easily take your mind into thinking of your childhood and upbringing and did you feel at home there? Sometimes we do and sometimes we don't, all right? Now, spiritual home, huh, what is that? What does that mean? How can we use our spiritual practice to create a sense of being at home and connected and kind. All right. So in order to get to the place of presence in our spiritual practice, for me, it seems like we've got to go through some muck and some messiness. All right. And for a while, I felt like I could just leave all of Wilkesboro behind. <laughs> like I could just leave it behind. I didn't, I wasn't going to be the one that was racist. I wasn't going to be the one that felt like we were had original sin. I wasn't going to perpetuate this deep unworthiness that, however, I soon found out that's not necessarily completely true. We can't just leave it behind, and I'll get to that. But how, what's, the, what's the points in between? Okay, realizing, oh, wait, I'm not, I, I need to get out of here. And then realizing, oh, wait, there's nowhere to go. I'm actually here. There's nowhere to go. And I can't leave it behind. And now I've got to homemade. I've got to create something and make something different. All right. So there's a lot in between. And then I'm still working on it. I don't want to mislead you thinking I've got this figured out. This is still homemaking is an ongoing process. Homemaking Dharma is going to be something that I'm working on for the rest of my life. So, in a sense, what happened in my spiritual process was that I became a spiritual refugee. <laughs> and and that's it may, may land for some of you in a literal sense. 
I work with people that are in Ukraine right now and don't have a home and they're roaming around because they have what they need to, they have to. And in a sense, like that's going to affect all of us. So when I speak to this sense of being a refugee, I hold it very tenderly. All right. For me, it's in a sense of a spiritual kind of relationship to this term. It's like I, I wasn't sure where I belong spiritually. I wasn't sure what was true. And that question actually is what drove me. Um, it drove me. I just wanted to know what was true. I felt like everyone was lying to me, and I just wanted to know the truth. Um, Chengram Trumpa in The Myth of Freedom and the Way of Meditation, he says, we leave our homeland, our property, and our friends. We give up the familiar ground that supports our ego, admit the helplessness of ego to control its world and secure itself. We give up our clingings to superiority and self-preservation. It means giving up searching for a home, becoming a refugee, a lonely person who must depend on himself. Fundamentally, no one can help us. If we seek to relive our relieve our loneliness, we will be distracted from the path. Instead, we must make a relationship with loneliness until it becomes aloneness. Until it becomes aloneness. All right. So aloneness is different than loneliness. However, when I became a spiritual refugee, I felt so lonely. <laughs> Very lonely. All right. I remember Jack Colin, Jack Cornfield's one of my teachers. And I remember at some point in my process, he called me and I was laying like on a mattress on the floor of one of our 15 homes that Vince and I have. We've been moving 15 times. We had 15 literal homes and was laying on a mattress in the floor and one of them and he was like are you lonely and I'm like yeah he's existential loneliness is the worst all right there's loneliness and then there's this existential loneliness and that's what I felt it's like how could I connect on this existential level what is true here and we have arrived we are home I don't feel home I've had 15 homes I don't feel at home all right. Um, there's part of me that, of course, had moments of feeling connected and present, but overall, nothing quite made it feel like, okay, this is it. All right. And, and I'm satisfied that longing, longing. All right. So that's where we have to go. We have to go into this is my sense. You can feel into this for yourself, but my sense is that we have to go into this longing. Um, this desire for connection, this desire for truth, this you feel in your own blanks. Like, what are you looking for? Roger Walsh in Essential Spirituality, he says, the great religions call us to redirect our desires and enjoy the rewards of mature motives. They beg us to stop looking outside ourselves for satisfactions that can only be found within. They urge us to realize the limitations of physical delights, pleasant as they are, and to appreciate the unspeakable delights of the spirit, to reduce our craving for temporary satisfactions, and to seek instead the source of all satisfaction. So the great religions point us to this. All right the source of all satisfaction. And as I 
was on my own search for this satisfaction, I landed in, temporarily landed in the insight meditation tradition. And it felt like home for a bit. All right. And this is the thing. I was like, homes can change, right? You can have, I've had 15 homes, like homes can change. They, they can be temporarily satisfactory. And that's all right. So in the insight meditation tradition, I really inherited and really heard, now there's a lot more to it, but I heard that I could get out of here, all right? Finally, I found a way that I could get out of here. And so I practiced like, I, it was just the most important thing in my life. So I went on a retreat and I went on another one, and I went on another one, and then I went on a two-month one, and then I went on another month one, and I, you get the message, like, I was going to find my way out, all right? And that's important. If that's where you're, you are right now, then do it. Go for it. There will be things that we learn when we dedicate ourselves in that particular way. It's not the only way to learn it. It's just one way. However, what I really started to see that I, I had to apprentice myself to this longing. I had to give myself fully to something. And my practice was what I gave myself fully to. Belonging ourselves home from Toku Pal Turner. She says, before we can even ask ourselves how to heal our estrangement, we must first sink down into the wound itself and apprentice ourselves to it. We must enter into the question of what's been missing from us, of what we are deprived. Only when we lower ourselves down into that holy longing can we get a glimpse of the majesty that we are supposed to become. So I went for it. I gave myself over to this holy longing. And I kept asking the question, like, what is true? What is, who are we? Who am I? And eventually, through this way of doing things, I found, so to speak, a way out. There was so much concentration that built on these retreats that at one point, everything disappeared. It's just an experience. Sometimes people report it through psychedelics or other ways to get there. The whole world, everything, the body, everything just disappeared. Just in a moment, gone. And then I got spit back out. <laughs> and then I came, I'm here. Like I got a body. I didn't die. All right. So yes, there is that kind of way out. And yet here I am. That realization, like being able to sense into that aspect of us that is our ground of being, that is here no matter what, that is indestructible, it's an important part of the journey, all right? It's an important part to incline ourselves to questioning, all right, to inviting that recognition. It gives us a baseline so that we can, when our muck comes up, okay, wait, it's harder to ignore, honestly. It's harder to run away. It's harder to, it just makes it more workable to know, okay, yeah, there is something in us that all of us have. We're really interconnected and it can't be, it just can't be destroyed. It's, it, 
the thoughts just bounce off of it in a way that you're just like, wait a second, I can't take myself so seriously anymore. All right. Judith Blackstone from Trauma in the Unbound Body says it like this. She says, fundamental consciousness is vitally important for healing from trauma because it cannot be injured. It has never been injured, no matter how severe our traumatic experiences have been. When we realize ourselves as the fundamental consciousness, we know that we have not been irreparably damaged. We can actually feel that who we really are, who we have always been deep down, known that we are, has always been there intact. All right. So to me, that is an important baseline. It changes our actions. And that's part of where our practice points us to is that recognition of this. When we're able to soften around the contraction as we expand, that's one way that we're starting to say, okay, wait, we're much, much bigger than our smaller sense of who we are when we get tunnel vision and have a lot of thoughts about ourselves. Yeah. Now, so in some ways, I got spicked back out after I thought I found a way out. And so what brings me here is compassion. Is the realization from the second turning that form is emptiness and emptiness is form. Okay? So form is emptiness and emptiness is form. And I'll be honest with you all, that was really disappointing. It was really freeing and then very disappointing at the same time. It's very liberating and very disappointing. Chungaram Trumpa says, we must surrender our hopes and expectations as well as our fears and march directly into disappointment. Work with disappointment, go into it, and make it our way of life. And then I have this smaller... I don't know, maybe she's three years old in my experience that says, really, it's not going to just change overnight. <laughs> really, this is going to take, this is going to take some work here. Homemaking, it's work. What? And part of the work in my experience is working with the heartbreak, living, learning to live with a broken heart. And the Buddhist tradition, I mean, it's told us this for thousands of years. There's joys and there's sorrows and joys. And you can just sense into your experience where your mind usually goes. Usually it's in the goes to sorrows. Psychology tells us negativity bias is a real thing. Thank you. Ten things can go well, but we'll focus on that one thing that goes not so well. And right now I am going to zoom into the heartbreak part. I'm going to zoom into, okay, yeah, there's a lot of grief that we work with in our spiritual path, right? And that's part of what, if we work with the grief and we work with our own shadow, those parts of us that are disowned, that we want to sweep under the rug that we really don't want to see. If you think of a house and like making a home, it's like, yeah, there's some cobwebs in your house right now, I'm sure. Even though I get my house cleaned every month, like there's some cobwebs. 
right? There's some stuff that we sweep under the rug that's really tender that we don't want to look at, we don't want to work with, that we think, oh yeah, eventually we'll find our way out of. And we've got to work with the grief, whether we've lost someone, lost multiple people, lost our spiritual tradition. Look around at the world and say, oh my gosh, we're still fighting. We're still fighting. And even the way that we work with grief and know about grief has changed and evolved. So some of you may be aware that, of course, there the Elizabeth Keebler Ross's five stages of grief. Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. And it's a cycle. Think of it as a cycle. Now, in the Washington Post, there was an article today that is expressing how the younger generations have pushed back on the stages of grief thinking. All right, so the stages of grief thinking is no longer in vogue. And according to Mary Frances O'Connor, associate professor of psychology from the University of Arizona, the grieving brain, the surprising science of how we learn from love and loss, she says the trouble is what was a description of grief became a prescription for grieving. All right. She describes grieving as a type of learning that over time evolves into a newly integrated aspect of the a, a, a newly integrated aspect of the individual's identity. All right. Describes grieving as a type of learning that over time evolves into a newly integrated aspect of an individual's identity. The lifelong trajectory of grieving requires, quote unquote, throwing out the map that we have used to navigate our lives together with our loved one and transforming our relationship with this person who has died. So that's interesting. Maybe sense into how that might apply to your spiritual path. Throwing out the map. <laughs> A type of learning that evolves and is eventually integrated. And so how do we learn? And part of that and part of finding what works for us in the grieving process is to allow that to look a lot of different ways. Like how you grieve can look a lot of different ways. All right. You got to use your discernment. Part of working with our heartbreak is discerning what's going to be supportive in this moment and what's not. When you walk into a room full of people, like, how do you know this is going to be nourishing and how is it not going to be nourishing? All right. And then can you allow anger or whatever to arise, whatever signals to you that something might be off? Can you allow that to happen? And then can you listen to it? All right. And then eventually I feel like for in my own path, like where I am now, it's 
okay, there's a deeper and deeper grieving that happens and it leads to this integration of, okay, yeah, so there is no way out in the way that I thought. This is it. Perhaps I have arrived. I am home. It's okay not to like it. <laughs> it's okay not to condone behavior. But there is this acceptance to it. All right. And then joy can come. Joy, it's, yeah, it can come. And so part of what I sense is needed too is that we've got to be willing to look at our own spiritual story and like the elements of it. Just like when I first started in the Baptist church and then here I am now, there's a lot in between that and the stories that I've inherited. And what are some elements of the story that I feel like are really important? What are your keys to your spiritual story? I would recommend to you that one of them be a, a bottom line belief in empowerment. If your spiritual path is not about empowerment, what, what, what's going on? <laughs> what's going on? So we've got to face this, all right? We've got to face our stories. We've got to face the reality of, okay, yeah, some things can be changed, some things can't be changed. We've got to work with the heartbreak. James Baldwin says, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. And as we face our spiritual story, Brene Brown says in Rising Strong, curiosity is a shit starter. But that's okay. Sometimes we have to rumble with a story to find the truth. All right? So rumble with your spiritual story. The other... So in, this, in the sense of empowerment, I'm part of what I would like to encourage us to think about is... Most of us have this deep-rooted belief, feelings, body sensations, contraction about being worthy, all right? So incorporate worthiness into the story, all right? Worthiness, according to Tokipal Turner, worthiness is not some state of attainment. But it is the ongoing willingness to meet life squarely. Worthiness is the ability to say, I am up for this. I am equal to life. She also says the habit of unworthiness is a kind of splitting off, causing us to show up only partially for life. Worthiness is felt in direct proportion to our ability to live an integrated life. Rather than outcasting the parts of ourselves that are afraid to be seen, hurt, or left behind, we allow and include them moment by moment, strengthening our capacity for inclusion, for belonging. It is the practice of bringing the fullness of our presence to a moment, whether it's filled with rage or an upwelling of sadness, to say, this too belongs. So a story of wholeness, 
that we are complete just as we are. Parker Palmer says, wholeness does not mean perfection. It means embarking broken, embracing brokenness as an integral part of life. So in our making ourselves at home, it's going to be messy, all right? It's going to be messy. And that needs to be part of the story, that it's perfect and it's messy, all right? That there's this fundamental consciousness and we still hurt each other. And sometimes some people very violently. And that's heartbreaking. So the more that we work with these aspects of our own selves, then the more we will be whole, all right? The more that we can rest in this loving awareness and act from these places. And I also just want to side note it that I'm not saying that meditation is going to cure us completely, all right? And the spiritual journey is only part of piece of development, all right? Ken Wilbur from Integral Buddhism, he says, meditation can loosen the repression barrier and make shadow access easier. But this isn't always a good thing, and in some cases makes it worse. Most meditation, for example, works by helping us disidentify or detach from the body and mind, from personal thoughts, feelings, and emotions. But much psychopathology stems from premature overdone detachment or disassociation or disowning of specific thoughts and feelings. Anger, for example, can be disassociated or disowned frequently, causing feelings of sadness and depression. In meditation, if I'm disidentifying with whatever arises, I will simply further disown this anger, making my depression worse. All right, so within the heartbreak, know that part of it is, okay, yeah, we can see this very clearly. We can start to objectify things. At the same time, though, we may need some support, psychotherapy support to be able to fully integrate. All right, I did. After everything disappeared, I was spit back out. I was like, oh my gosh, I can't get anywhere. I ended up in psychotherapy. <laughs> okay. And then contemplating, I've arrived at home. Wait a second. You know, this, how does this, I know we're all interconnected, but this doesn't feel like home. I had to work to make it home. And we have to do it together. This was the other thing, right? I can't just make my home together. I can live by myself and make a home that's a certain kind of home, but then I have friends that come over. So we work together with this. Because I really am starting to see more and more clearly that there's no way I'm going to be happy unless everybody's happy. I'm teaching for myself. Krishnadas, Krishnadas, he's a chanter. I've gone through all kinds of things with teaching. Should I do it? It's been a process. I didn't just take it lightly or easily, this role. And Krishnadas was chanting the other night. We were listening to it. And he's, somebody asked him something. I don't even remember the question. I just remember his answer. And he says, you think I'm up here for you? I'm up here to save my miserable ass. I'm just, I love y'all. And, you know, it, this is like, it, we're so interconnected that I can't get out of this. Okay, fine. And now I'm in it with all y'all, really? So how are we really going to do this? Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, 
all people are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. And you can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. And so part of the examining your spiritual story, I would really recommend too that you don't just leave everything behind. There are pieces from your ethnic and cultural backgrounds. I grew up in a Christian dominant religion. I don't know what everybody's background is, but there are pieces. There are strands. A couple ones for me, it's seek ye and ye shall find. Seek and ye shall find was something that just really stuck in my mind. And then I had a teacher one time that said, be careful what you're seeking. So I'm just going to plant that seed. I love that phrase. And then I started to really hone in. Okay, what am I seeking? All right. Am I seeking to prove that my mom didn't love me? Or am I seeking a connection with God? I'm going to seek a connection with God. I'm going to seek that inner connection feeling with everyone. All right. And be very clear about that. Another one that stuck with me is empty me so that I should be filled. Empty me so that I can be filled. And that's interesting, too, because that kind of correlates the Buddhist tradition of in form is emptiness and emptiness is form. <laughs> All right. So as we start to incline to like homemaking Dharma and creating, making our home within this world. Alice Walker says, look closely at the present you are constructing. It should look like the future you are dreaming. So it's not always comfortable, this homemaking dharma process, okay? So if you're looking for some sort of comfort from your spiritual path, question what kind of comfort you might get. <laughs> because we've got to rumble with our stories. We're going to, we're, I, uh, you might rumble with your neighbors. I live across the street, neighbors that we have, Vince and I and my kid. Um, my phrase for them is, may they be free from hatred. May you be free from hatred. May you be free from hatred. Because there have been so many times that my dog has accidentally, my kid has accidentally let my dog out and they just, they're just, they're not friendly people. And she started to yell at my eight-year-old kid. And of course I'm going to jump. I'm not going to let that happen. So part of creating a home is you got to have boundaries. Okay, you got to have boundaries. And and I even caught myself saying to her, so is this about your deep unworthiness? Is this what this is about? And of course, she has every, not every word in the book, but a couple like name call. She's a big name caller and called me a lot of names. And I'm like, okay. And I was yelling. I'm not going to say that I wasn't yelling. Although my kid said, hey, you didn't name call, like you weren't cussing a lot. And I'm like, good. Okay. But I am going to be the mama bear. I am going to be like, excuse me. You're not going to talk to my kid like that. If you have a problem, you need to talk to me. So here I am, homemaking within the Dharma, and my neighbors literally love my neighbor as myself. All right. 
That is way easier said than done. I do not like them. I will not like them. However, we're going to have to create this home together. All right? So how am I going to go about doing that? How are you going to go about doing this? <laughs> May they be free from hatred. And sometimes <laughs> Trudy Goodman says the contents of this moment are the contents of awakening. All right. So even in the difficulty with my neighbor, the contents of this moment is the contents of awakening. So for me, I find what I need to make a home. Within the heart space. Within heart space. And there are some elements that I sense into, like when I feel, when I would describe feel at home, when I'm at home, when I can be at home, what, are, what is that? To me, it sense, the sense of it is connection, presence, love. We can be mindful of our patterns. We can see very clearly what is happening. But what is it really that creates the change? Love. It's like I can be mindful that I'm going to eat that piece of pizza even though it's not good for me. But what keeps me from eating the whole pizza? Love. All right. Ajahn Sumato from the Buddhist tradition, he says, we can always imagine more perfect conditions, how it should be ideally, how everyone should behave. But it is not our task to create an ideal. It's our task to see how it is, to learn from the world as it is, for the awakening of the heart conditions are always good enough. Ajahn Chah, who was Jack's teacher, he says, it is here in the world of form. Only in form can we develop integrity, patience, generosity, truthfulness, dedication, compassion, and the great heart of a Buddha. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.